Welcome to the Vince Del Monte Podcast Show, where each week we bring you the raw and real experiences, lessons, and timeless principles every man needs to master the five M's of manhood. By sharing conversations with the world's most successful people pursuing the five M's, you'll build muscle faster, achieve a winner's mindset, increase your money, dominate your mission, and go the distance with your marriage. My name is Vince Del Monte, entrepreneur, author, pro fitness model, and father. And I've helped tens of thousands of men transform their bodies and lives through muscle, entrepreneurship, and personal development. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. All right, so here we are. You guys have been hearing a lot about the build-up towards this call today with Stephen Guiana, who is a neuroscientist and an obesity researcher and has written a book called The Hungry Brain. Now, this is a book that I saw come out last year, and I didn't have a podcast at the time, and I knew that if I ever did have a podcast, I wanted to get this man onto the show because the content that he explores is something that is rarely, if ever, discussed in the bodybuilding community and in the world of you know counting calories and tracking macros and getting lean. And no one's really talking about this piece of the conversation that contributes heavily to how we get lean and whether we stay lean. And um, Stephen, one of the big things that I share with my with my followers is that I don't care about your after photo. I'm more interested in your after after photo. So I'm really excited about having you here today. I'm gonna uh, admit I'm a little intimidated uh, with your with your credentials, and um, I just really was extremely humbled when uh, my podcast manager reached out to you and you were enthusiastic to jump on the call today. So. I'm really excited to uh, dig into the content. So how about we just uh, tell our listeners uh, who you are and uh, what brought you to writing The Hungry Brain? Yeah, sure. So uh, I am a uh, researcher, author, science consultant, and I'm someone who's always been interested in science, always been interested in fitness, health, and nutrition, although probably not as motivated for fitness as you or most of your readers. Um, you know, I did sports in high school and college and have continued to do strength training and cardiorespiratory exercise uh, as I've aged. Um, and I think that I, I've always had an affinity for science. I mean, I literally would read science textbooks for fun when I was a kid. That was, that was the thing that I did. Um, physics, biology, whatever I could get my hands on. It's just, you know, some people just have intrinsic motivations that they're born with. And science was one that I was born with. And um, I was particularly interested in the brain. You know, the brain is an incredible organ. It's not only is it possibly the most complex object in the known universe, but it's the thing that really makes us who we are. It's the thing that yeah, it's the thing that makes us who we are. So, it's, and and furthermore, it's something that we don't understand. There, there are a lot of things we still don't understand about it. So, it's a frontier in science that's really um, has a lot left to explore. And so, I did biochem undergrad with the idea that I would form a foundation for neuroscience. Did neuroscience uh, for my PhD at the University of Washington, 
And at the time I was, you know, I was trying out different things, trying to figure out what was really going to interest me. And I was studying neurodegenerative disease, really interesting research. I got into some, some interesting stuff. Um, but I kind of eventually felt like the particular disease I was studying was kind of too rare to really satisfy me. I wanted to, I wanted to work on something more impactful, especially because, I mean, science is a very resource intensive process. Like you're using a lot of money, you're using a lot of plastic and I'm talking about taxpayer money, you know, right, using a lot of taxpayer right. money, using a lot of plastic, you're using animal lives. And so I said, you know, I want to do something that really has a big impact on people, positive impact. I want to try to figure out something major. And it's, it would be hard to come up with anything bigger than obesity in terms of its impact on people, um, you know, health and well-being and, and all that physical performance. And so I decided that I wanted to take my neuroscience expertise and start applying it to obesity. And it turned out to be a really powerful intersection. And most people don't really think about that. They don't really think about the intersection between, between uh, neuroscience and obesity. But the fact is that the brain generates all of our behaviors, right? I mean, the brain is the only organ in the body that generates behavior so all of our eating behaviors, all of our physical activity behaviors, and a lot of our physiology is also regulated by the brain. All of our feelings, all of our impulses, all of those things are generated by the brain. There's no other organ in the body that does those things. And so it's actually a really logical framework to start thinking about why we eat the way we do, why we, um, why we feel the way we do around food, around physical activity, around whatever. And so uh, for my postdoc at the University of Washington, I worked on the, obe uh, the neuroscience of obesity. So parts of the brain that actually actively regulate your level of body fatness and what changes in those brain regions that uh, creates or at the very least allows obesity to occur. Um, and then I, you know, while I was doing that work, I kind of saw a bigger picture where I thought, okay, it's not just about this one brain region regulating body fatness. It's about all of these brain regions that are affecting our drives and our behaviors around food and around physical activity. And in fact, there's this really big, crazy question. And that is, why do we overeat even though we don't want to? Wow. You know, like, wh why would you... Why would you, why would anyone do anything they don't want to do? I mean, consciously, nobody wants to overeat, right? They don't want to eat enough food that it makes them overweight or obese and develop diabetes and cardiovascular disease and not have the physical performance or the appearance they want. Nobody wants that, yet we do it anyway. And in the United States, the lifetime risk of obesity is over 50%. So more than half of people at some point in life will become obese. So what explains this? And that's what my book's all about. It's about exploring these brain circuits that what it boils down to is that there are these non-conscious, impulsive, instinctive brain circuits that evolved for particular purposes that drive us to eat too much food, even though our conscious, rational brain doesn't want us to because it's not consistent with our healthy, rational goals for ourselves. So that's that's what got me to this point.
Right. So, you know, I think a lot of the guys in the fitness community, men, women, we've been exposed more to the conversation of, well, it's a lack of willpower, or maybe you don't have the correct understanding of what to eat, which I strongly disagree with because there's more than enough information available to us today on how to set up your calories and your macros. But let's pretend maybe that is the case and people want to argue, no, it's just your calories. No, it's just your macros. It's just your willpower. You need a, a better goal or maybe you're just not committed to your goals. This is what was really eye-opening to me because I always find myself eating in very specific environments. And uh, recently I was traveling to Tampa, I was in Clearwater, I was in San Diego, I was in Las Vegas, and I was just surrounded by temptation galore. And I was reading your book, so I was like learning all about this while I was on these trips, like trying to arm myself, yet I still found my behavior betraying my intentions to get lean and stay lean through this trip. So maybe we can jump into a bit of the, um, you know, I had some takeaways uh, from your book that I shared with uh, my Maximizer Muscle Readers. And one of them was that one of the things that we need to understand is that we have two systems in your brain. So, so could you talk about these systems in your brain? Yeah, absolutely. So this is an idea that comes from Daniel Kahneman, guy who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He's a Nobel Prize winning psychology researcher who has uh, had a big impact on the field of economics. Uh, really interesting book. If anybody's interested in it, just kind of how to think as well as we can think, be as rational as we can be. Um, but basically what his research suggests is that very broadly speaking, there are two types of systems in the brain, two types of neuron circuits. Uh, there is system one, that is the non-conscious, impulsive, instinctive brain. This is uh, composed of a variety of different circuits doing a variety of different things that are mostly outside of our conscious awareness. And you know, some of them are really obvious examples, like there are circuits in your brain that regulate your cardiovascular system, your blood pressure, your heart rate, your breathing rate when you're not paying attention to your breathing. Like There's all these things that are automatic, right, that the brain is doing. But it's not just physiological processes that are happening. There's a lot of stuff that's happening kind of automatically in your brain. Like, where does hunger come from? Like, did you decide you wanted to feel hungry? Or is that just something that arose out of parts of your brain that you don't really have access to consciously? How, like, where did a craving come from? Did you decide you wanted to have a craving? Or is that something that just arose from... Uh, some computation in a, a part of your brain that you don't have access to. So that's all, that's, those are just examples of what system one is. Um, those things are all, they're like, it's like parallel processing. There's a lot of things happening at the same time. Um, they're automatic, they're effortless. You don't have to exert conscious effort to like keep your heart beating at the normal rate and stuff like that. And then there's system two, that's your conscious, rational mind. And this is uh, a, a system that is it's not really as diverse as system one. It can't do a million things at once. It can only really do one thing at once. And this is why there's not really such thing as multitasking. You can switch quickly between tasks, but you can't actually focus your mind on two tasks at once. And... Um, and that system is conscious and it's effortful. So 
you have to exert effort to focus on understanding something complex or on doing a math problem or something like that. You don't have to exert effort to experience a craving or to experience hunger or to do all the things that system one does. So that's kind of the framework. And and Daniel Kahneman, he doesn't talk about it in terms of food and cravings in the kind of way that I've framed it. Um, but it's a logical extension of his idea, and it's one that I focus on in the book. And so basically what we have going on in daily life is a tension, a conflict, not always, but often a conflict between system one and system two on how you want to eat. So like if you're, let's say you go to a party and there's cookies on the table and you're hanging out with your friends and you're sitting there and the cookies are right there within arm's reach, you're smelling them, you're seeing them, they look delicious. Uh, your system one is going to be telling you to eat those cookies. Your system two, if you care about fitness and health and nutrition, is going to be telling you not to eat those cookies. And so there's a conflict that's happening in your brain, literally a conflict between different brain circuits that are kind of slugging it out. And go ahead. Yeah, that's great. I want to, I want to hear more about why uh, this so, so what does this mean and, and you know, what decisions does it lead us to seeking out more? But um, the system one, system two examples were really interesting because just like literally um, the day I was reading that chapter, I was out on the street for a walk with my son and there was Starbucks and he likes the banana bread. And I, I clearly told myself before I walked in there, I'm just going to get my Americano. Because I know every time I go in Starbucks, I see the coffee cake, which is what my daughter likes. My son loves the banana bread. Next thing I know, I got myself a banana bread. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I just read this in the book. And like, so this, so I want to, you're going to have to explain what's going on here from the evolutionary standpoint. But then it happened to me again last Friday night. I came upstairs, long day at work. I missed a meal, I believe. So I was like kind of tired and my brain quickly somehow computed that it would be far easier to pick up the phone and call Go Hang Restaurant, which is two minutes from my house, for them to bring over the ginger beef so that I could consume this delicious deep fried uh, beef recipe that um, was like seconds from my fingertips, even though that wasn't on the plan for the day. There was food in the fridge. In fact, there was healthy food in the fridge. It wasn't because my cupboards were stocked with bad food. And I would love for you to just unpack, uh, I'm not going to give away the name, but the name for this evolutionary whole um, miswiring wiring process that is making us strive these, these types of foods. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, what you're describing sounds very much like uh, the types of behaviors that people have when they're trying to quit smoking. And and by the way, I'm not trying to say that eating, you know, deep fried beef is is as bad as smoking. I don't think it is. But um, it's in the same type. It's the same type of thing. It's the same category of thing where, like, you have a plan, you're going to stick with it. And all of a sudden you find that you have a cigarette in your hand and you're smoking it. And you're like, what the hell happened? <laughs> yeah, this is this is something that people describe a lot trying to quit smoking. But I think that type of behavior even though you find it in a more extreme form when people are addicted to cigarettes, you find less extreme forms of it in our lives all the time. And you just described two great examples of it. And what that relates to, and like I said, system one 
the the non-conscious intuitive impulsive system is composed of many different circuits doing different things. But what you're talking about here is mostly behavior that's associated with the reward circuit. So this is the circuit that governs um, motivation and pleasure and certain types of learning. And it's the thing that determines the seductiveness of food. So the way it works, um, if we take kind of a evolutionary angle, basically we evolved to have a hardwired affinity for certain types of nutrients that sustained the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. So natural selection crafted brains that seek certain specific types of nutrients that helped our ancestors. And we have receptors for those specific compounds in our gastrointestinal tract, particularly in the upper small intestine, but also all along our GI tract, including in our mouth. For example, when you taste something and it tastes sweet and you like it, that's an example of what I'm talking about. So there are these receptors. Um, and basically what they do is they measure the concentration of carbohydrate and fat and protein and salt and glutamate, which is that umami MSG delicious meaty flavor in certain things, soy, soy sauce, sauce, meat, uh, That's the MSG. Chinese food I love. <laughs> What's that? The Chinese food I love. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah I'm that, and I'm Italian. I didn't even grow up on this food. That's yeah. what's crazy. I didn't grow up on this food. You can kind of say, yeah, but Vince, you had spaghetti and meatballs every Sunday since you were a kid. Of course you're going to like that. Your dad always brought home apple fritters. Of course you're going to like baked goods. I never grew up on some of these foods that I crave today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of this flavor nutrient learning that I'm about to describe happens especially strongly in childhood, but it also happens throughout life. Um, so basically the way it works is when when your when your small intestine detects that there's large amounts of carbohydrate, fat, and protein and salt and glutamate in that food, those are the specific things that your brain is looking for. So it's paying attention to what's going on on these receptors. Those receptors send signals to the brain and cause certain parts of your brain to release dopamine. And that dopamine is released proportionally to the concentration of those nutrients. So if you eat an apple, you're going to get a little dopamine spike because there's some carbohydrate in that, some sugar. If you eat a brownie, you're going to get a big dopamine spike because there's a lot of carbohydrate, there's a lot of fat, and it's really concentrated. And so um, that dopamine spikes, and what that does is it motivates you to keep eating that food. But another thing that it does that's probably even more important is it causes you to learn. What it does is it sets, that dopamine sets your future motivation for that same food. And so your brain, what it does is it notes all the sensory characteristics that were going on at the time that you ate it. So for example, with the brownie, it notes the texture and the flavor of the brownie. It notes uh, the appearance, where you were, who you were with, and all that stuff. And it, it marks those as cues that um, predict the availability of all these great nutrients in your gut. So basically, the next time you see or smell a brownie or you're in a situation where you normally have a brownie, your dopamine starts to spike again, and that tells your brain, hey, this is a situation in which we can get a ton of these amazing nutrients, 
by the way, they're not amazing today, but in our ancestors' time, they were. And so, and it spikes your motivation, and you experience that as a craving. You experience that as a greater propensity to engage in purchase and eating behaviors. And so, the problem is today, we are surrounded by foods that are so concentrated in these nutrients that spike dopamine, because it's not just about their concentration, it's also about combining them together you have fat and carbohydrate and protein, like a slice of pizza has a lot of stuff that the brain intuitively values in it. And so when you have those things really concentrated, it increases your dopamine a lot versus a bowl of oatmeal or an apple or some lentils. And your motivation, your impulsive, intuitive motivation, in other words, your craving is correspondingly going to be higher for those foods. And so that causes you to learn to like the flavors that are associated with the fat, carb, whatever. And so if you grew up eating spaghetti and meatballs, your brain's like, oh, yeah, the appearance and flavor of the spaghetti and meatballs, that's what I like. That's what I know predicts all those nutrients. But if you have Chinese food two or three or 10 or 20 times, your brain learns that that same association with the smells and the appearance and the location of Chinese food also predicts those awesome nutrients. And so you learn to implicitly value those. And in other words, you learn to like them and feel motivated by them through your cravings. So the more dopamine driven the food, the more likely you're going to want to consume it again, which explains why I don't have a love or develop a love for broccoli <laughs> or cauliflower. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because I've heard people say, well, you just have to learn how to love these foods. I'm like, how? <laughs> how is that even possible? Please don't tell me you're, you're only fooling yourself. So we've learned to crave calorie-dense foods full of sugar, fat, and starch because that dopamine reminds us. And uh, this is actually something that I teach all of our guys that go through transformation contests. So they've dieted down for whatever, 12 weeks, 16 weeks. And uh, one of the things that's taught in the industry is to have a big cheat meal you know, you deserve it, right? You just got lean, you know, go have a cheat meal at the end of your 12 week cut or whatever, or now go on a vacation or now go to Las Vegas pool party and, you know, blow your diet. And what we teach is to not do that, which has been influenced by your book because uh, that dopamine quickly, quickly reminds you of what you've been missing out on for the last 12 plus weeks. And that's what leads to the all out binge and reversing 12 to 16 weeks of hard work within literally one or two weeks. Guys say it's water weight, but we know that's it's not just water weight because then they have to mm -hmm. spend another 12, 16 weeks diving it off to get ready for the next show. So I want to thank you for your research in this specific area because it's taught, like I used to tell my clients, people that paid me money, I would tell them, you can have a big cheat meal as soon as you snap your after photo. We do not teach that anymore because of this new research. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's uh, definitely, that is consistent with the way that uh, your brain works. Essentially, you, over time, basically, if, if you don't eat that brownie or you don't eat that pizza, over time, your brain very slowly forgets that reward association. And this is the same way that someone who, trying to quit smoking, you know, a week after they quit, 
they're going to have huge urges. They can't be around people who are smoking. They can't go into the convenience store. They can't experience those sensory cues that previously triggered their cravings and their behavior because it's too powerful. But a year later, after somebody quits smoking, two years later, most people can be around people who are smoking. They can they can experience those cues again and not have that powerful reward drive. And so it's it's the same. Again, I'm, I, I like to use drugs because they're kind of an extreme example, but this is the exact same process we're talking about. These are the same brain systems. Drugs essentially activate brain systems that evolved to motivate us for food and sex and all the good things in life. They basically just hijack those same pathways. So I like to use that as kind of a really clear extreme example of it, but it's the same qualitatively, it's the same thing happening. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, there's, there's costs and benefits to letting people have, um, a cheat meal though. Cause like, you know, people sometimes just get tired of dieting and they want to take a break. So you have to consider adherence as well, but certainly it is true that having a big blowout meal, you are, as you said, well, you're reminding your brain of all the good stuff it's been missing out on. And, and particularly you're in a vulnerable state at that point because you have dieted and your brain is it, your brain is perceiving that it's in an energy depleted state. And so your hunger is going to be heightened. Your cravings are going to be heightened. Um, and it's going to make it all the more difficult to control your eating behavior. And we can talk if you want, we can get into, why that is and what brain circuits cause that but yeah so that's interesting yeah no i think that's great i love that word you just said vulnerable i think that's a new word i'm going to start uh if you don't mind borrowing you know you're in a vulnerable state that's such a great description so you know we've got to be mindful we have to just understand there's this window of time that we we need to be careful if you will so you know you were just talking a little bit before that basically proximity to food matters and you know if you venture into the wilderness for a week you're gonna quickly discover your cravings for hamburgers chocolate chips they almost disappear but then as soon as you get on the highway you're driving <laughs> you know you're driving <laughs> back into town you start seeing the billboards for you know burgers or whatever all of a sudden you start uh increasing your cravings and and we're talking about proximity so i think there's going to be some obvious takeaways here but um, is there any other things that would be um you know valuable to share when it comes to like uh, just the whole idea of distancing yourself, is it like, I would love to know like what your home's like, could you just safeguard it, not allow anything in? Is that really the best, is that the policy, would you say? Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. I mean, I think, I think controlling your food environment is huge. And, you know, this is not something you got to be a, a genius to think of, but it's, it's a very simple thing that I think delivers a lot of value and is really consistent with the, you know, neuroscience of how our cravings and our behavior work. Um, and yeah, so in my house, there is no, there's very little visible food at all in my house. So if you walk through my kitchen, I, I, I should say there is visible food, but it's all stuff that you would have to prepare. There's like dry beans on the counter in jars there is unpopped popcorn. There's like oatmeal, stuff like that. Interesting. So, so stuff that requires effort. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You can't just reach your hand into the jar and eat it. The only thing that I, the only things that I have that you could eat easily are foods that are not that tempting 
and uh, require a certain amount of effort to eat. So for example, I have peanuts in the shells and they're unsalted. So, and those are in the cupboard. So if I'm hungry and I want a snack, I'll go in and I will open the package of peanuts. I will crack the shells and I will eat the peanuts. And I'll tell you, if I'm not hungry, they don't taste good. Unsalted peanuts aren't that delicious. But if I am hungry, sure, they're fine. I'll eat peanuts. Um, and it, that really helps to regulate my intake in a in a healthy and constructive way. I also have apples available for snacks. Those are in the garage. I buy large quantities and put them in my unheated garage to, to store. And if I want an apple, I can go in there. I can grab one. I can wash it. And then I can eat it. And again, that's something that it's it's a healthy food. It's not that tempting. It's not a bag of chips. It's not a soda on the counter. And I have to do a little bit of work to get it. I have to go into my freezing cold garage, grab it and wash it. So that's that's my strategy. And there is another piece to it. And and so just sorry, just to take a step back and break this down a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. There's two concepts I'm applying here. Um well, I guess three really. One is not having um, a lot of food visible. So I'm not giving myself those sensory cues that triggers the brain reward pathways. Um, not having things within really close proximity so that I, because if, if something's in arm's reach, even if it's not that good, you might still eat a fair bit of it. And third, not having things that are super tempting around. So like, if I had chips in my cupboard that were in a bag that I had to open, I might still eat them despite the effort required because they're so delicious, you know, like potato chips. Um, so I don't, I don't put myself in that situation. And so the really tempting stuff, the ice cream and the chips and the pizza and the brownies and the cookies, that stuff doesn't even come into my house. Because the truth is, your brain knows. Yeah. There's a little man in the back of your, your brain, brain that yeah. knows the ice cream's in the freezer. Yeah, and that man starts to pipe up after dinner. So um, not having those things available is an obvious way to help control that behavior. And it's one that I, that I, uh, that I use. That said, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a drill sergeant with myself. I do eat those foods sometimes. Um, it's not complete exclusion. I just greatly limit them and I don't make them part of my daily eating routine. I think it's great. You know, you got to create your, you got to turn your home into a safe haven. I always uh, used to tell clients early on, again, I built a brand around no nonsense. So I'm tough on men. I'm not the kind of guy that sugarcoats things. So I'm not afraid of hurting guys feelings, but I tell them you should be ashamed of yourself if you get fat in your own home. Because you have, you're the only person who has the keys to the front door. And, you know, these are the kind of messages that, you know, us men need to hear. We need to up the standard. And um, I, I would like to kind of segue just for a second. And we didn't actually, um, I didn't ask you prior to us starting to record. Uh, do you have kids? I do not. I'm married and don't have kids. Okay. So I still want, I still want your opinion on this. And I, I love your input on this because I've got two young kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And, you know, I know all this and I'm watching their eating uh, habits develop with, you know, certain foods that they're getting exposed to and trying. And, um, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts and maybe, you know, some precautions you would set, maybe some advice you would give me as a father with two young kids. You know, I'm kind of like we're trying to navigate this 
you know, very responsibly understanding that, you know, we're not Nazis, but at the same time, there are trickle down effects to allowing them to say, ah, it's the birthday, oh, all the other kids are having, oh, we're tired, you know, just lowering the bar. So what kind of advice would you have for, you know, a dad, um, a father of a home, uh, parents of a home with young children in terms of like, the brain's getting programmed, as you said, at a very young age. What kind of maybe rules would you have or would you really try to govern in your home? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So first of all, I want to just reemphasize what you said, that it is a very important period um, for forming food preferences and food behaviors. And so you have a wonderful opportunity to try to shape that in a way that could help your children for the rest of their lives. And I think essentially, um, so I mean, I, I, I wanna say that I'm, I'm gonna speculate a little bit based on the evidence that I have. I, I don't have randomized controlled trials that I can draw directly from and tell you what 100% confident what the absolute best thing is. But so it's gonna be a bit of speculation based on what I know about, about this topic. I'm taking notes um, here, Stephen. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think you want to expose them to a wide variety of healthy foods, basically, and not have uh, extremely highly rewarding foods be a regular part of their diet. I mean, you, I think you want them to learn that healthy food is healthy, less calorie dense, less refined food is just what you eat every day. And that's what satisfies the palate, you know? And as far as, you know, I, I think it's, it's pretty much impossible to get a kid to avoid having a child eat cake or eat cookies at some point, get ice cream or whatever. And, you know, how old are your kids? Uh, four and two. Okay. So you've probably seen them react to some of those foods, right? It's like crazy. ice cream cookies. And, and even, yeah, isn't and it? Even when they say they're not hungry and then you bribe them with, you can have a chocolate after, all of a sudden they're hungry. It's, it's, it's yeah. truly unbelievable. Yeah, kids are especially responsive to food reward and especially sugar. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing, right? So they're, it's another vulnerable period. We could use that word there as well. Um, but I mean, I don't know how realistic it is to completely shield them from those foods always. I think, I think the best you can do is limit it as much as you can and not turn it into a huge big deal whenever they are exposed to those foods. I think that's a good, yeah, yeah. I think you've got a really, you've got a great approach to that. Like they're, they're vulnerable. I uh, give them a nice wide variety of foods. Don't use food as like a highly rewarding thing you know hey you did good in school tonight let's go eat out tonight it's like so yeah i think you, you got to draw the line and uh again you know you're not going to deprive them of life but uh, really get them to appreciate uh, i think the process of cooking and the time it takes to uh, create food and that and uh, that's one thing i do with the kids we make shakes green juices and uh mm -hmm. i always get them to participate in the in the creation of the food and i always bring them to the grocery store and i let them sit in the um, cart when i push them through the store and i open up the berries and the the store clerks are the, they never like me because my kids leave a trail of berries on the floor nah. uh, you know I, I get them to fill up on on like you said those low calorie nutrient dense foods 
and uh, getting them to appreciate uh, natural foods that you could find in the wild that are not as you know refined food products, um, if you will. So that's great cool. advice. I appreciate that. Yeah, and actually, I have something else to add, if you don't mind. Of course. Um, the the way that so a lot of kids don't really like vegetables that much. Like, uh, you know, vegetables are something that most people kind of learn to like over the course of their lives, and the reason is this reward pathway where when you have a vegetable paired with salt and fat enough times, your brain learns that the flavor and the appearance of broccoli or kale or whatever it is is uh, predicts the delivery of, of fat and sugar, or sorry, fat and salt. And eventually you learn to actually like the sensory qualities of the broccoli or the kale or whatever, at least most people do, um, itself because it's been repeatedly paired. This is just Pavlovian conditioning like Pavlov did with his dogs. And, um, so you can use that to your advantage with kids. If you want them to like vegetables, you can make a point of adding larger amounts of things that the brain actually wants, like fat and salt and sugar, to help them uh, develop a taste for those vegetables. And I actually know of a friend of mine who has kids. He and I have talked about a lot about this reward stuff, and he tried it with his kids. He uh, made a point of putting liberal amounts of butter on all the vegetables that they ate. And now his kids, I've never seen anything like this, never heard of this before in my life. His kids will go out into his garden and literally grab handfuls of raw kale and eat them plain right out of the garden. I've never seen anything like it. It's insane. So it's it's a double-edged sword because you don't necessarily want to train your kids that you have to have a large amount of butter on everything to eat it. But at the same time, I mean, it is a way for you to kind of train them gently to learn to like foods that are nutrient-dense because the, the brain doesn't doesn't intuitively appreciate vitamins and minerals. Like, if it did, we would love, like kale would be the most delicious thing. We would eat it like brownies without anything on it. But that's not how the brain works. The brain doesn't really care that much about vitamins and minerals. It wants the fat and the sugar and the starch and stuff. And so that's a kind of way of, of sneaking around it. I like that a lot. It's funny because uh, one of my old uh, neighbors, uh, he was uh, from the Middle East, and uh, I remember him inviting me over to his garage one day. He was having a barbecue in his garage. He's like five kids. <laughs> the guy has like five kids under the age of, I don't know, like seven or something. And, and he invited me to have some fish. And they were literally cooking. He had gone to Fortino's, a grocery store in our area, and he had uh, a fish deboned on the barbecue. And he was taking it off, and the kids were eating just white flaky fish with their fingers <laughs> and and I, I, you know, I'm a, I competed on stage for many years as a fitness model. So, I mean, we lived off of white fish for the last few weeks before the show. It was horrendous. But I was like kind of, oh, man, that's just the thought of eating <laughs> fish again. And these kids were just devouring it. So I think there definitely is something to be said about, you know, forming their experiences early. And, uh, you know, they don't know what they don't know until they get a taste. And just, again, that moderation angle is really, I think that's a great place to kind of pause on that. Um, I'd love to pivot to um, the buffet. 
I love to talk about beating the buffet effect. And you uh, shared some really interesting science on uh, why we tend to um, overeat specifically at buffets. And I'll just tell you a quick, quick story. You know, we grew up going to um, this place called um, the Mandarin here in Toronto. And it was just like this epic day where you blew your diet, you didn't eat all day because you knew you were going there. And the food wasn't that great. But you kept eating. What like I could until I read your book, I had no comprehension of what was really going on. Like, why did I keep going up for another plate and another plate? So maybe you can help us understand what's going on at the buffet and how to beat the <laughs> buffet effect as you describe in your book. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean that's that's a great thing that you pointed out that I was also gonna point out that buffets, I mean, it's not exactly fine dining. Like the food is not the most amazing food you ever ate, but I think most people, including myself, will recognize that we tend to overeat pretty dramatically when we go to buffets, and the evidence bears that out. Um, so much so that researchers talk about the buffet effect, whereby we just overeat dramatically. And yeah, it's actually pretty well understood why this happens. Um, it relates to a property called sensory-specific satiety, and this is... Um, a phenomenon whereby we will become satiated or full on a particular food, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are full if we're exposed to a different food that has different sensory qualities. So for example, if you're eating steak, or let's say steak and potatoes, and you're, you're totally full on that, like you, you feel totally satisfied and then somebody brings out, somebody brings out like dessert, a chocolate cake, or even just chips or something with a different texture, or different flavor. All of a sudden, you will be ready to eat again, and your satiety will kind of have disappeared. And so, what happens in a buffet, and and this has been demonstrated very clearly in scientific experiments in in people. Um, this effect has been demonstrated very clearly. Like you can be full on a particular meal. You you can be like, yeah, I'm done. I ate as much as I need. I'm satisfied. And then all of a sudden you're not full when there's different types of foods presented. And so the buffet is the basically maximizes um, or minimizes, I should say, sensory specific satiety because you have an almost unlimited variety of foods. So every time you take a bite, you're eating something different from that buffet practically. And so you never really reach sensory specific satiety on the meal as a whole. And eventually you just, you just keep eating and eating and eating until the satiety circuits in your brainstem throw the emergency break. They're like, whoa, you've eaten way too much. This is ridiculous. We're eventually going to stop you, but not before you've overeaten dramatically. At least that's the typical, typical experience. Um, yeah. I was just going to jump in with another quick story. You know, I grew up in an Italian family, as I was, as I was saying, a lot of family members, a lot of weddings. So Italians were known for, you know, the multi-course meal, six, seven course meal. So I grew up just like fascinated with Italians' appetites. I'm like, where do they get these appetites? <laughs> and uh, 
it's because you know you start off with the antipasto and then you've got your pasta dish and then your fish dish and then you have your meat dish and then they bring out the salad then they bring out the fruit then they bring out the dessert and then at midnight you've got the pig and then you've got another dessert table and then you maybe have a chocolate fondue table it was so funny at my own wedding my friends they were like they thought that the app that they i kid you not they thought my non-italian friends they thought that the appetizer um so the antipasto course was the whole was the whole night, nah. <laughs> and they were ready to go to the open bar. And I'm like, oh no, we're just getting started. You make yourself <laughs> make yourself comfortable, but you know this all. I mean, thankfully Italian food is you know, just the food that we eat is very very good. But it also helped has helped me understand being in a family where food is celebratory and a huge part of our life. I've always kind of like, yeah, but. But this is what we do, and I'm like, this is just normal to eat all this food. But I never really understood, like, why do I keep going up for all these additional plates? I keep finding a second stomach and a third stomach and a fourth stomach. And then I set myself back, and I'm like, man, I'm not the fitness professional. I'm not displaying the physique that I should be displaying for the amount of knowledge I have. And again, it all came back to, like, you know, uh, you know that whole, like, conversation in your head I'm not you know maybe I'm not committed enough maybe it's willpower maybe etc cetera, etc cetera, genetics so uh, this was really fascinating so yeah what are some tips on fighting back how what are some yeah. takeaways yeah yeah um I'm glad you mentioned that because I think there are some really important practical takeaways here um and and I want to take just a small step back first and describe another scenario where sensory specific satiety applies and that's simply dessert. So, you know, the, you mentioned the second stomach thing that we all, we've all experienced this. You're full at the end of a savory meal and then all of a sudden you can eat several hundred more calories of dessert, whether it's ice cream or whatever. Um, that relates in part to sensory specific satiety and also the fact that dessert tends to have a very, very high reward and pleasure value. So, um, yeah, so basically we can exploit sensory specific satiety, that principle, we can exploit it to not only eat less, but to feel more comfortable with less food. And basically what you do is just have less items on, have fewer items on your plate. So the minimum number of items in a meal that satisfies your nutritional goals will help you to control your calorie intake without feeling deprived. That's great. So, you know, if you know you're going to be doing buffets regularly, it might be, hey, today I'm going to stick to the meat dish. I'm going to try some, uh, you know, some meat and uh, some potatoes and a salad, but I'm not going to do the, you know, the pasta and the desserts. Like, so kind of rotate, rotate your food choices around. That's a great practical thing. I actually never even thought of that. Just, you know, limit it, have a plan before you go in, knowing you've got an endless options of endless option of things kind of pick a theme are you going to do the fish theme tonight or the meat theme tonight are you going to go maybe a carb theme tonight but don't don't do them all yeah that's right that's right yeah it's a definitely a good strategy for navigating buffets another thing i would add that's kind of a related practical strategy is if you're if you're a dessert person like if you have a hard time saying no to dessert at a restaurant for example eat a piece of fruit before you go to the restaurant because what that does is it satisfies or at least partially satisfies your sweet tooth before you go there. So you're, you're filling up your sensory specific satiety for sweetness, at least partially. 
And that's going to fortify you when it comes time to say no to dessert. So there's one more big topic I'd love to talk about today. And, um, you know, we live in the year 2017 right now where, you know, fitness marketing, marketing period, it's at its finest. You know, every single platform, virtually everybody's a brand now. And a lot of people in the nutrition space, you know, one of the best ways to sell their cookbooks their nutrition programs, etc., is to sell, hey, this tastes delicious, this tastes amazing, eat your favorite foods and still get lean. Uh, but your, your book was really eye-opening, it was really real, and um, I think anybody who's got lean will resonate with this. And it's, you know, maybe the truth not everybody wants to hear, but we need to ensure that we are not in denial of this. And you talk a lot about the value of bland and boring food in helping you stay lean. So uh, I would love for you to even talk a bit about our obesity history and why maybe some other uh, countries don't experience the same um, obesity rates as us and why maybe other cultures in the past didn't experience the same obesity rates that we experience today and how it's all kind of tied into this idea of uh, valuing, looking at a value eating bland and boring food. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. I mean, this is like a dirty little secret of the diet book industry is that the way to sell a diet is to say you're going to lose weight while eating the most delicious, satisfying food you ever ate in your life. But those losing weight and eating the most delicious food you've ever eaten, those are two goals that oppose one another. Your and whole book... <laughs> Your whole book just basically disproved that whole idea. <laughs> if you take it to the extreme, obviously, yeah. But you're right, setting yourself yeah. up for that extreme. Sorry, I cut you off, but yeah. No, that's all right. Uh, I and you know, it's not it's not that you have to eat boring food to lose weight. That's I, I wouldn't put it that way. But what I would say is that it's a tool that can help you eat fewer calories and lose weight if you want to use that tool. So and it can be a powerful tool. And so, um, yeah, if we go back in time, I mean, I, I think it's really valuable to kind of think about the context of uh, human history and human evolution and really what the human body and brain were designed for, what context they were designed for. Like, if you want to, if you're a zookeeper and you want to decide what's the absolute best thing I could feed the animals in this zoo how do you do it? Like, do you do randomized controlled trials or do you just say, what does this animal eat in the wild? What has this animal been eating for millions of years? What is it naturally adapted to? What's it going to thrive on? And so that same type of logic that's been so successful in zoos, we don't really tend to apply that to ourselves, but I think it is a very useful perspective to take. And so what did our ancestors eat? What did our ancestors eat when we were hunter-gatherers back in the Paleolithic, what did they eat when we were early agriculturalists 10,000 years ago and from then until a couple hundred years ago? Um, what did we eat just a century ago? I think those are really important questions and not, not just about food either. It's also about lifestyle, physical activity and food environment, stuff like that. But, um, but we're focusing on food right now and if you look at how hunter-gatherers eat, I mean, how our ancestors would have eaten for millions of years, if you look at how current-day hunter-gatherers eat, I mean, they eat really simple food. They just, they pick berries and eat them. They dig tubers and throw them in the fire and then eat them. 
they hunt animals and throw the meat on the fire and eat them. Like sometimes they'll use pots and they'll like boil meat and maybe they would put maybe like a couple different things in there, like an herb or something. But most of the time they don't have salt. They're not sauteing onions. They're not, they don't have flour. They don't have sugar. They're not baking stuff and using their mixers and their blenders and all of these accoutrements that we have and the ingredients that we have to enhance the pleasure of food. They're just eating simple, unrefined food in its natural state, almost completely unprocessed. And the processing they do do usually is nothing more than like grinding and cooking, sometimes grinding and often cooking. So, I mean, that's so different. That is just diametrically opposite to how we eat today, where most of the food that most people eat in the U.S. and affluent countries is refined processed food, whether it is like fully prepared or made from processed refined ingredients like white flour and sugar. And furthermore, like every meal that we have is like entertainment for our palates. I mean, we focus really a lot. If you really sit down to your meal and think about why did I do this? Why did I add salt? Why did I add fat? Why did I prepare it in this way? There's only really one reason. I shouldn't say there's only one reason, but there's one very common reason for a lot of those decisions, and that's because it tastes good. And so we're accustomed to having this entertainment, constant entertainment of our palates. Um, But the problem is that when you enhance your food in ways that makes it more intuitively motivating to the brain, makes it more seductive, you are enhancing your eating drive and you're going to be enhancing the number of calories that you eat. And so today, I think one of the the most important principles here is that our ancestors, whether they were hunter-gatherers or agriculturalists living a subsistence lifestyle, they were not able to extract and concentrate the dopamine spiking properties of food very effectively. So these are the things that I talked about earlier that we have specific receptors for in our gut and that spike dopamine in the brain. They were not able to get um, isolated crystalline sugar. They were not able to get isolated crystalline monosodium glutamate. Uh, In many cases, they were not able to get isolated crystalline salt. Uh, They were not able many in many cases to get isolated fats uh not able to get purified starch i mean these are all things that technology the march of technology has allowed us to have in the modern world and we have purified those and i I like to give this analogy i think that's a perfect analogy if you go to south america people chew the coca leaf as a mild stimulant it's like having a cup of coffee and you, you get a little bit of cocaine that goes into your system and is a mild stimulant, very low levels of it. People chew it. It's, it's not harmful. It's just it's like drinking a cup of coffee. But when you take that leaf and you say, hey, I'm going to purify out the active ingredient in this that spikes dopamine, and that's cocaine. And so once you concentrate and purify it, you get a much more powerful substance that becomes potentially addicting. And then if you further modify it chemically to, so that it crosses cell membranes more effectively, it becomes crack cocaine and becomes even more addictive. So basically, each step of technological process, e- progress 
Each step of technological progress has allowed us to enhance the reinforcing, the motivation, motivating, the craving inducing, the addictive potential of whether it's drugs or food or the internet, pornography, all of those things, video games. Um, technology has allowed us to stimulate dopamine more effectively than our ancestors ever could. And, you know, I'm not going to say it's all bad. We certainly enjoy eating some of those foods and maybe that has some value, but there's a downside and that is that it makes us eat too much and it drives us toward obesity and disease and not having the appearance or the physical performance that we want. I think this conversation is really helpful because you know, the pendulum has just swung a little too far back towards the direction of like every meal needs to be like, you know, Las Vegas quality restaurant you know, experience. And I've re-embraced, you know, some of my simple meals like chicken and rice or oatmeal and egg whites and just having at least a, a, a bigger percentage of my meals to be more on the bland and boring side as a, as a way to not increase my vulnerability and to just understand that yeah we just do live in a day and age as you're talking about there's so many different cooking methods you know from grilling baking braising roasting sauteing i was writing them all out deep frying pan frying simmering poaching we didn't have all those different ways to make our food taste so much different so to just basically don't go overboard on the always having to make your food taste amazing because Truth is, this food's not going anywhere. You've got your entire life to go out on the weekends and on trips and stuff. So we don't need to go overboard in the place that we can control. And I think that was a huge take home for me and uh, to ensure that we don't promote an irresponsible message that is setting people up. Or I don't even know if it was ir intentionally irresponsible, but uh, a message that is just setting people up for massive vulnerability unknowingly. And just having them only be able to think that, oh, I guess it is my genes. I guess I'm not committed. Um, yeah, I guess I'm never meant to have a great body. And it's really just they're not acknowledging, you know, the biggest trigger. And I think, you know, we can wrap up the call on. And I'd love to just kind of maybe hear your final thoughts on this one last uh, conversation around the whole idea of like, what is really driving obesity? Is it, you know, I've got caught up in, I'm embarrassing, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit how many debates I've got caught up on, on, you know, debating calories and carbs and, you know, different, different types of eating. And, uh, you know, what if you're the scientist, you're the researcher, you know, um, what is really driving, what does the research show that is the number one, um, Sorry, you got to excuse my like kind of marketing words, like the number one, but like, <laughs> what is, what is, what's really driving, um, what's the evidence really supporting in terms of what's driving obesity these days? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it really depends on the level of analysis you want to look at, whether you're talking about environmental influences or what's happening in the body or thermodynamically. But I think, I think what you're getting at is the thermodynamics of it and, it really does boil down to calories ingested versus calories leaving your body. And um, that, I mean, there, we have randomized controlled trials under very tightly controlled conditions that show that it doesn't really matter what your macronutrient composition is, cal calories are the thing that is determining your body fat. And I, I should, I should uh, qualify that. I didn't say that as well as I meant to say it. Um, macronutrients don't have an effect on body fatness that is independent of calorie intake. 
So right. your your calorie intake and your expenditure are determining your body fatness. So under very controlled conditions where your calorie intake is tightly controlled, you can change the fat to carb ratio. It makes no difference. However, in real life, the macronutrient ratio that you eat can affect how many calories you're eating, and that can affect your body fatness. So I'm not saying macronutrients don't matter. What I'm saying is they don't matter independently of calorie intake. But yeah, basically, if you look at the obesity epidemic, our calorie intake has gone up and our physical activity has not gone up. And that's really the simple explanation for it. Although the reason why our calories went up is, of course, complicated. Gotcha. That's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> Stephen, where can people pick up a copy of your book? Is there a preferred spot that, uh, that, you, um, that people can grab a co- their own copy? It's available from all the major booksellers. Um, easiest people are probably familiar with is Amazon, um, although it's also available on Barnes & Noble's website and other major booksellers. Also available in uh, UK and uh, New Zealand, Australia, Italy, uh, will be in Japan, possibly a couple other countries. Um, and my website is stephanguiana.com. Or if that's too hard to spell, you can get there uh, through wholehealthsource.org. My Twitter handle is WHSource. Tweet a lot of science mostly, also some gardening stuff and other various things that interest me. Yeah, I'm a big-time gardener. Uh, do, you do, uh, do you do Instagram? I don't do Instagram now. Okay, I, saw, I was looking to tag you. but uh, Okay, that's great. We'll put that all in the show, show notes for, you, for everybody because um, – I want everybody to pick up this book. It's a real eye opener. And uh, for for me, uh, I've always kind of been intimidated by you know science books, and I really enjoyed this. I read it uh, between a couple flights in the month of November, and uh, I took a ton, ton of notes. I think you guys will really enjoy. It. You've really summarized things in a way that people can understand what's going on with themselves so that they can take immediate action to improving their eating habits and structuring their nutrition in a way that helps them get lean and stay lean. So I just have one final question, more of a a personal interest one. Uh, What are you looking forward to these days? Hmm. Um... Yeah, let's see. I... Hmm. You know, I I have a project that I'm cooking up, but I'm not ready to, uh, well, okay, I have a couple things. One thing I'm not ready to to talk about yet, but it'll be coming out, and I'm really excited about it. Um, Another thing is uh, I have a weight loss program called the Ideal Weight Program, and we have upgraded it. It's really cool right now. It's a course-based program. It's based on all the principles in my book. Uh, it's, It's a I should say it's a weight management program, so not just for weight loss, but for people who want to maintain. Um, And we haven't officially launched yet, so that launch is coming up soon, and it's through the website humanos.me. We'll put it all in the show notes. That's great. And um, I think that's it. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience, leave with the audience? I think that's that's it. it. Okay, thank you so much. That was an amazing interview. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. 
love this episode of the Vince Del Monte podcast, then head on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. And most importantly, it will help us spread the M5 mission to other men like us dedicated to maximizing and mastering the five M's of manhood. Thank you for listening and we'll speak soon.